Welcome to the Beltline Church of Christ podcast. We're so glad you found us. Please take a second and hit the subscribe button so that you can be notified of these weekly podcasts. Most of all, we hope this podcast will help you take your next step with Jesus. If you want to know more about us, you can visit us at www.beltlinechurchofchrist.org. Here's today's lesson. Um, last week, uh, Steve did such a great job of, of setting up what is about to happen in the life of Christ. This is a, a monumental moment, and I'm honored to get to walk us through it this morning. I'm so excited uh, to get to talk about this. Uh, if you'd like, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7, and we'll be at verse 24 as we uh, dive into this wonderful lesson. The question that continually comes up uh, in the first eight chapters of the book of Mark is, who is this? right? Who is Jesus? It's over and over again. And this account is truly beautiful to explore. It's going to show us the compassion of Jesus. It's going to prove that he truly is loving father, uh, that he is merciful savior, that he's wonderful counselor, that Jesus is the prince of peace. And we're going to see that in this in this uh, sermon today, in this study. So I really encourage you to follow along. I grew up... Um, wrestling with my dad. I think that's something really important for dads to do with their sons, by the way, is, is wrestle with them. And uh, as I was growing up, man, my dad would beat me down. I don't know how many of you know my dad. Dad's, you know, a, a Vietnam vet and then a police officer my whole life. And uh, he could put the whooping on me, all right? He could, he could really, uh, even as I got into my teenage years, I knew who was going to win the wrestling match, okay? And when Dalton got old enough, uh, we started wrestling, you know, and uh, now he's a little bit bigger than me, so I don't pick a fight as often as I used to, but uh, something about wrestling with kids that many of you fathers know, there are two things happening simultaneously when a fight breaks out or when a wrestling match breaks out. For the son, it's an exercise in total and absolute aggression, right? Have you ever wrestled a four-year-old? <laughs> they will kick you, they will bite you, they will punch you, they will throw things at you, they will jump on you with everything they have. They're, they will bring their full weight down upon you, on your head if they can, and they will try their very best to wrestle you, to put you in the ground, to bring you into submission. And the other thing that's happening at the same time is on the father's part. You see, the father is the exact opposite. He is an exercise in total restraint. The father is going to let the son feel enough of his weight to realize the futility of his aggression without crushing him. He's going to be careful, isn't he? He's going to make sure that the son is cared for. The father is holding back. My dad used to tell me, uh, there's more where that came from. <laughs> And I knew there was. I knew there was. <clears throat> you know, in the Bible, we see a few times where God's people are actually wrestling with him. Uh, Abraham begged for the lives of the people who lived in the cities in the valley, remember? And, uh, and Jacob, he wrestles with God later. And as we embark on this passage, I hope that you'll keep those those two examples in mind because we're going to read about a New Testament Jacob, a New Testament Abraham here. <clears throat> Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. And like a good father, he, he brings into our lives those times of, of wrestling, those times of struggle, 
in order to bring out the best in us and to help us really see who he truly is. He knows our limitations. He knows our strengths. He knows our needs. And Jesus knows because Jesus is our creator in human flesh. Our Father who invites us to wrestle with him and discover the depth of his immense power and his, his immense love and patience and kindness. So let's read together. There in Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 24. It says, Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know which house he was staying in, but he couldn't keep it a secret. Right away, a woman who had heard about him came and fell at his feet. Her little girl was possessed by an evil spirit, and she begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. Since she was a Gentile, Born in Syrian Phoenicia, Jesus told her, First, I should feed the children, my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. She replied, That's true, Lord, but even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plates. Good answer, he said. Now go home, for the demon has left your daughter. And when she arrived home, she found her little girl lying quietly in bed, and the demon was gone. <laughs> What a moment in time. What, what a moment to, to be with Jesus. Now, now Jesus, he, he never leaves the Jewish provinces. He never leaves that area except for this time. Right here, right after his teaching that the outward things don't make people unclean. It's what comes from our heart that defiles us. Remember last week in Mark chapter 7? There in verse 20 through 23 says, he added, it's what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, comes uh, evil thoughts and sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come within, and they are what defile you. You see, he's saying, it's not the water that you wash your hands with, or, or forgetting to wash your hands. It's not the skin that your soul is clothed with in this life that makes you right before God or wrong before God, defiled. No, it's, it's what's in your heart. It's what's going on in your heart. What comes from in our hearts that defile us. You know, the Pharisees... They just didn't understand the clean laws from the Old Testament were to be a visual aid to help you repent. They thought those laws were actually the way to become clean and holy before God. But no, it was, it was about the heart. And it was about repentance and bringing your heart to him. And don't forget that at the end of Jesus' ministry when he's ascending into heaven, Matthew 28, who does he send his disciples to teach? Who does he send them to? The whole world. All the world. Gentiles. Go and, and teach. And baptize and teach some more. So this Syrophoenician woman hears about him being there. And she seeks him out. I wonder what she had heard about Jesus. Surely she had heard about his miracles. She had heard about the wonderful things that he'd done. Right? She'd heard about uh, what a great teacher, possibly. She lived close enough to... Uh, to Judea, that she would have known the customs. She would have understood how things worked in Judaism. She would have known the religious, moral, social, cultural barriers to approaching a Jewish rabbi. And yet here she comes and no one can stop her. In fact, they tried. Matthew 15 is a, a writing about the same moment in time. 
And Matthew includes that information that his disciples tried to stop her and they couldn't. And in fact, they even said, Jesus, send her away. But he didn't. And here she is, coming to Jesus for what she needs. And on the surface, when we read this, it sounds like Jesus is insulting this woman. And that's what she would have expected from a Jew, right? He, he calls her a dog, and, and he absolutely does say this. And, and certainly a dog was an unclean animal for the Jewish people, but it was also an unclean animal for those Gentiles also. They didn't want anything to do with them, okay? And so, on all accounts, this is, a, this is an insult. And so when we hear this, it, it might be surprising because his teaching that he just gave was that she's not unclean because of her heritage, because of her ancestry. That's not what makes her unclean. And so this remark is not so much a racist remark as it may come across as much as it is a theological remark. That it is a theological teaching that he is giving to her and also to all those others who are in the room, those who came with him, those disciples of his. And here's this insult. But it's not so much an insult as it is a parable. And his response to her is both a challenge and an offer. And she recognizes this. And this is what's truly spectacular about this Syrophoenician woman. She recognizes it. She sees both the challenge and the offer, and she responds to both of them. And she does it with humble assertiveness. Humble assertiveness. She enters into Jesus' parable of the children and the dogs. And in fact, the word that he uses here for dogs is actually more like puppies, all right? Yeah, there's puppies under the table. They eat the crumbs that fall off the father's table, right? The children first, but those puppies, they pick that up off the floor, she enters into the parable and she claims her blessing. Verse 28, Mark 7. That's true, Lord. Some versions say, yes, Lord. But even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plates. You know, this humble assertiveness, this is how we should approach Jesus too. Our loving Father. Our Father who, who loves us and desires a deep relationship with us. Yes, Lord. In this amazing statement, she's saying, I'm not coming to you based on my own goodness. I'm coming to you based on your goodness. And this is, this is difficult for us to understand. What this is, is rightless, rightless aggression, okay? Meaning, she knows she has no right. She has no right to step forward. And yet, you know, I think many times if, if I were called a dog... I would assert myself as, hey, wait a second. I'm not a dog. You know? <laughs> I would want to punch back. I would want to, I would, I would want to, instead of in humility, I would just be aggressive, right? She has this humility about her that she takes this insult and she comes back even with more humility. It's difficult for us to understand rightless aggression because we complain and we argue for what we think we deserve. We stand on our rights and we see TV shows and we see, uh, hear music and we see the news and people are always standing up with that fist raised, right? This is my right. This is what I deserve. She doesn't do that. She doesn't do that at all. To approach Jesus with empty hands to fall before him in absolute helplessness. This is New Testament faith. This woman is a prototype of Christian faith. 
This woman is an example for every single one of us. And obviously, I believe Jesus knew that she would be. And he goes straight to Tyre to meet this woman. After he's just given this monumental teaching that, that is, is saying, listen, those things that you've thought were right, they weren't right. These people are going to be accepted also. But there is definitely an order to things, right? Jews first and then the Gentiles. We understand that. And she understands that. And yet still she comes to Jesus and she says, I know that there's enough mercy on your table. I know that there's enough love on your table. I know that, I know that they're your children. But I'm your child too. I wouldn't have life if it weren't for the Creator. And I'm coming to you asking for my blessing. She says, I need you. I need you. Here she is approaching Jesus with empty hands, falling before him, total humility. You know, there's two ways people fail to receive Jesus as Savior, really. There's two ways. One is to be too proud and maybe have a superiority complex. And the other is to feel too lost or have an inferiority complex, Right? To, to, to look at Jesus and say, oh, I, 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 see, I see who you are, I see what you are, but I think I'm fine without it. I, I think I'm doing all right on my own. I think I can handle this, Jesus. The other one would be to say, I'm not even approaching him because there's no way he could ever accept me. There's no way I could ever be in his presence. And here's these, these two opposite things that so many of us have done, have we not? We've either been one or the other. And at different phases in our life, we've been one or the other. And as things happen to us in this life that we wrestle with, that we struggle with, do we raise our tiny fist at heaven and say, this is not what I wanted. This is, this is not right. Or do we pray to our Father who loves us so much? And do we say, Lord, I'm before you. And do we follow the example of Jesus that says, not my will but yours be done in my life. Are you missing Jesus as your Savior? Are you missing it because you've gone one direction or the other, the way of pride or, or the way of inferiority? <clears throat> you see, it's just as much a rejection of God's love to refuse to assert, to seek, to go after his mercy as it would be to say, I'm too good for it. It's just as much a rejection. You're just as lost. You're never going to, to find it unless you come to the one who can give it. And Jesus Christ is the one. Jesus Christ is the Lord. This Syrophoenician woman, she's like a teaser trailer of what's to come in the book of Acts, isn't she? She's a teaser trailer. And she says, I want mine now, Lord. My daughter, she's in pain. You know, in, in chapter 9, we'll read more about a, a man with a son who's possessed by an evil spirit. It throws him in the fire. It throws him in the water. They're tortured all the time. This, this mother is at her wit's end. And isn't this just like a mother? To no matter what, no matter the fact that, that she's a woman going before men in this time of, of the world, that, that she's a Gentile and he's a Jew and she still comes, all the barriers that existed between her, but she's a mother and nothing's going to stop her. Nothing's going to stop her from getting to the one who can deliver what she needs, what her daughter desperately needs. This is the first person to actually comprehend a parable of Jesus in the moment and respond to it and be able to adapt her life to it immediately. What an example she is. 
Lord, I'm not saying give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. I'm saying give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness. Like we said before, she's a New Testament Jacob wrestling with God for a blessing. In Genesis 32, Jacob said, I won't let you go until you bless me. And here she is. Can you see this? Somehow this woman knows there's more to Jesus than meets the eye. She knows there's more mercy, there's more compassion, there's more power and healing. Let the crumbs fall, she says. I'm here for mine. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus teaches, but to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, offer the other cheek also. If someone demands your coat, offer him your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks. And when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Go to others. Go do to others what you would have them do to you. You think this might have been what she heard about Jesus? Maybe this is the teaching, the very teaching that she had heard that he had given. Verse 32 of Luke 6. Keep going. If you love only those who love you, why should you get any credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money to those who can repay you, why should you get any credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. And by any account, this Syrophoenician woman is an enemy. Okay? Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be great. You will truly be acting as children of the Most High, for he is kind to those who are unthankful and even those who are wicked. You must be compassionate, just as your Father is compassionate. Don't judge others, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn others, or it will come back against you. Forgive others, and you will be forgiven. Give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full. Pressed down, shaken together to make room for more. Running over, poured into your lap. Flowing out of the table of God into your life. Have you approached him for yours? He said, Lord, I know I don't deserve it. But I know that you, you are so merciful. You are so loving. You will give it. And you know what, church? He's calling us to be that way also. For us not to keep our, our blinders on to those who are in need around us. For, for those who, who have things going on in their lives, we're the ones to now go as the hands and the feet of Jesus to meet those needs. And to, to recognize this is a marriage that's struggling down the street. This is a, this is a, a, a person with, with financial issues who I have just come in contact with. To have eyes and ears that are open for the spiritual needs of other people. And not just that, but then a spirit that is willing to meet the needs. Soon we're rolling out our take the next step. Take the next step with Jesus initiative. And we want every person here to be a part of it. And it doesn't have, you don't have to wait until a rollout. You can start right now. Just notice. Just notice people in need and invite them. Invite them to be a part of what God is doing at Beltline of what God is doing in Decatur with this church family. We have blessings to give, and so let's give them away. If you ask this woman who Jesus is, I think she would tell you very plainly, he's God in the flesh. 
He's God in the flesh. That's who Jesus is. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. The next person that we read about here in, in Mark 7, starting in verse 31, is this man who, who couldn't hear and he could barely speak. It says in verse 31, Jesus left Tyre and he went up to Sidon before going back to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the ten towns or the Decapolis. A deaf man with a speech impediment was brought to him and the people begged Jesus to lay his hands on the man to heal him. Verse 33, but Jesus led him away from the crowd so they could be alone. He put his fingers in the man's ears and then spitting on his own fingers, he touched the man's tongue. And looking up at heaven, he sighed. He sighed. And when he sighed, he said, Epapha, which means be opened. And instantly the man could hear perfectly and his tongue was freed so he could speak plainly. Jesus told the crowd not to tell anyone. But the more he told them not to, the more the, they spread the news. They were completely amazed. They said again and again, everything he does is wonderful. Everything he does is wonderful. Everything he does is wonderful. He makes the deaf to hear and he gives speech to those who cannot speak. Jesus is full of compassion. Did you notice all the things that he did with this man leading up to the healing, leading up to the, the miracle? He touched his ear. Well, he, first, he took him away from the crowd. Of course, the crowd follows. But he takes him away from the crowd. Can you imagine uh, the years of this man's life that he's spent being ridiculed by the crowd, being ridiculed by other people because he can't hear what they're saying and he can't communicate to them what he needs or what's going on with him? And all the ridicule or the, the distrust that would have built up over time. And Jesus has compassion. He says, come on. Let's go over here. And then he speaks to him in a way that he can understand, doesn't he? He says, I'm going to do something about that. I'm going to do something about that. Now let's pray, right? He's, he's using sign language to guide this man into where he wants him to come, where he wants him to be, so that this man is not left behind and not, uh, not ignorant of what's happening in the moment. It's compassion, He's giving people exactly what they need. So all the different things you see, you may, may notice Jesus doing before a miracle occurs. It's not because he needs it. It's not because he needs to somehow uh, call upon something to, to happen within him in order to then give something. No, it's already there. It's in him, okay? All the things that he does is for the person who he's healing. And for us, those who would come later, those who would read about what he did, he's doing it for us. He's doing it so that they understand that they're getting what they need. He's identifying with the suffering of this man, of that woman. He's the wonderful counselor, remember? He knows exactly what you need. I think something interesting about this text also that the Holy Spirit gives us through Mark is, is the word that he uses. Now, the Greek word is mogulilon, uh, but what it means is someone who can't hear and can barely speak. Someone who has a, a, a very serious speech impediment so that you don't understand if they do talk, you don't understand the noises that they're making. And, and this, this word is only used one other time, and I think that Mark purposely puts it here so that we'll go back and look at where it was written. And you can see it was written in Isaiah 35. In Isaiah 35... Did you notice what it says? He says, be strong and do not fear. Your God will come. It's about the Messiah. 
Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. And then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Very purposefully, Mark says, hey, don't forget, this is who we're talking about. Don't forget, we're talking about the king of the universe. We're talking about the creator of everything. We're talking about God, your father, and the person, in the person of Jesus Christ. This is who Jesus is. The answer is emphatically answered here. This is who Jesus is. And he, and he comes sighing. So why the sigh? In fact, it's more of a moan if you look at the real definition of that word. Here's Jesus sighing, relating to this person, identifying with his suffering, and he'll identify with yours too. Because he knows. He knows with every miracle, he's one step closer to Calvary, doesn't he? He knows that for this deaf, mute man to hear and speak, he must become as a lamb dumb before its shearers. Which is exactly we know, what we know is a head in his life. He sighs because for this man to be healed, for us to be healed, Jesus had to be destroyed. In other words, the divine child became a dog so that the dogs could become divine children. That's what Jesus did for you. That's what Jesus did for me. He said, don't reject my love because you think you could never attain to it. Because you're never going to be good enough for it. Don't reject me because you think so lowly of yourself. He says, but also don't go to the other stream and think you don't need me because you do. Don't think that somehow you're going to make it out of this life without me because you do. And in, my, in our minds we think, well, I'm a dog if I do and I'm a dog if I don't. There's no way except for falling on the mercy of Jesus. There's nothing like giving ourselves to the mercy of Jesus there's nothing like, like free-falling into his love and knowing that he is the Father who will catch us, that he is the Father who will hold us up, that he is the Father who will protect us. He is your Father. The divine child, Jesus, became a dog so that the dogs, you and me, could become divine children, and that's exactly what he's done. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14 says, either way, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we all died to our old lives. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. He says, now you're going to be a conduit through which the love of God flows to other people. Now you're going to reach to his other children. Verse 16, 2 Corinthians 5. So we've stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. We don't judge people by, uh, by their status. We don't judge people by their skin color. We don't judge people uh, by their past even. He says, no, you look for souls and you look into the eyes of these brothers and sisters of yours who God deeply loves and desperately wants to be with for all eternity. And you see a soul that Jesus wants to save. Stop evaluating others from a human point of view. The Holy Spirit goes on to say there in 2 Corinthians 5, at one time we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we see him now. How differently we see him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ is a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And now he's given us the task of reconciling people to him. 
God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and no longer counting people's sins against them. And he now has given us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Jesus Christ. It's only because of Jesus that you have a place at the table. But let me tell you something. You have a place at the table. <laughs> you have a place at the table. You don't have to wait under the table for a crumb. You can pull a chair right up to the table of God, uh, your creator, the only righteous one, the only good one. And he will deliver you. He will deliver you from the struggles that you've faced, from the hurts that you've suffered. This is God we're talking about. I want to point something else out before we wrap up. There's something else the Holy Spirit wants us to think about. What about the divine retribution that we just read about in Isaiah 35? Did you notice that? He's not whacking anybody. Here's Jesus. He's not taking power from anybody. He's giving power away, isn't he? He's helping people. There's not a lot of divine retribution that we see in the life of Christ. I think the answer is he didn't come to bring divine retribution. He came to bear divine retribution. And he did it on the cross. Jesus totally identified with us because he took our sin. He took our misgivings. He took the things that are wrong with me. And he nailed them to a cross, never to be brought up again. So that now I can live in his love. And because he identified with us this way, he has made a way for us to approach him for forgiveness. Humble, repentant, childlike. Have you ever noticed there's a graph about uh, those cross-references through the scriptures? And when you, when you see this graph, uh, you see all the different times that, that one thing leads to another. And that one scripture reaches back and, and reminds us of another scripture. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture, isn't it? To show us this document is not man-made. This document is written over 1,600 years by many different people from many different backgrounds. And yet it still has one message. And that message is that Jesus Christ is Lord. He wants to be your Lord. He, he, he wants to deliver you today. He, he wants to bring you to the table so that you can sit with your father. The fact is, Jesus Christ can cleanse anybody. He, he called her a dog to show that anybody can be saved. He, he cleanses everybody differently, yeah, because he sees our needs and he brings us to the table. He's always going to give you what you need. Everything is necessary that he sends you. And nothing that he withholds from you can be necessary. The truth is we're more wicked and destructive than we've allowed ourselves to accept, aren't we? But we're also more valued, we're more loved than we could ever dare to hope. This morning, I just want to encourage you not to be too proud to accept what the gospel says about your unworthiness. And I also want to encourage you not to be too despondent to accept what the gospel says about how loved you truly are. Listen, Jesus knows exactly what you need. Will you give it to him? Will you, will you come and fall into the arms of your loving father and allow him wash your sins away to give you a new life now meant to carry his love and his mercy to the lives that you might be able to influence all around this town and all around this country and all around this world? Have you heard the gospel? Do you believe it? You believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God? 
the very Messiah of promise from the Old Testament, the one who can redeem us from our sins? Will you repent of your sins? Will you put him on in baptism, be clothed in his righteousness? Thanks again for listening. If you are in North Alabama, we would love to have you visit and worship with us. Also, if this lesson blessed you today, don't forget to hit the share button and share this message with someone else. Hope you will join us again next week. As we close, here is our prayer for you. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Have a great week.